Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfund.com. So last week, I'm, I'm just doing a little two-parter here on parenting. Tom will also uh, tack one on there next week. And, um, but I want to just finish off uh, what I was talking about last week about parenting and just ties in so good together uh, today with this uh, parent-child dedication, which uh, was just so awesome. Thank you, Donovan. And it's so amazing, again, being in a church with so many young people, so many kids, so many young families. It's a real blessing. It's treasure. We are blessed here at this church for that. But uh, last week, we talked about parenting fears. And I want to talk a little more about parenting fears at the beginning, but then at the end of this message, I want to get to what is it that kids really need. Because we talked about last week that they don't need perfection. I liked what Donovan, Donovan repeated again up here this morning, that it's not perfection. And even the stuff I'm going to talk about at the end of this message, when I talk about what kids really need, the fact is that all of us as we're sitting here uh, today, if you're a parent uh, or whatever you are, because these principles, all the principles I'm going to talk about today actually apply to much bigger than just parenting. It applies to all of our relationships. But we're just applying them here to parenting because it's such an important uh, uh, calling. It's such an important duty to raise our kids for Jesus. But even as the stuff I'm going to talk about at the end of this message, I'm going to talk about stuff, and none of us lives up to it all the way. And I know sometimes in the past, you know, you learn, you're almost afraid to learn as a parent. You're almost afraid to read good principles about parenting or hear a message about parenting because you go back and you go, oh, I've been doing it wrong the whole time, right? Do you ever feel that? So you almost don't want to hear how you should do it because you don't like the feeling you get, that feeling of fear and guilt. Oh, I've been messing my kids up this whole time. But the point is, what I talked about at the end of last week's message is you don't have to be perfect and God turns all things for good. So this message isn't a message about looking back in the sense of, oh, I haven't been doing it right and I've been messing up my kids. You are a mess. Your kids are a mess. We're all a mess. Every one of us here is a mess. And Jesus, in his love, he knew that when he gave you kids. He knew that when he gave you your spouse, whatever station of life that you're in or stage of life or whatever. He knew everything about you and he knew that you would be a mess and he's working on us all in all of this. So there's hope in everything. You don't have to be perfect and Jesus can redeem everything and anything. But I think part of the problem is we don't know as parents what we should be shooting for. I mean, we, 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 we do know ultimately what we want. We know that we want our kids to grow up to love Jesus, right? We want them to turn out to be, and in addition to that, we want them to love Jesus and then as part of that, we want them to have good character. Isn't that true? You know, we want them to love Jesus. We also want them just to be godly, you know, productive members of, you know, healthy, happy members of society. So we know how we want them to turn out. That's not what I mean by we don't know what we should be shooting for. We know that part, but we don't know what does that look like in the meantime, right? We know that we want our kids to turn out in the end, but what does that look like now when they're six years old, eight years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, 14 years old, we know how, we know the ending, oh, we so much want our kids to know Jesus. I mean, that's the, the biggest thing for me that I want. And I know for many of you, that's the biggest thing you want. But now we look at our four-year-old, and she doesn't exhibit everything that a 20-year-old who's on fire for Jesus or a 30-year-old who's on fire for Jesus would exhibit. And so we go, well, is she turning out? You know, is my six-year-old boy, is he turning out? So we know the ending, but we don't know in the meantime, what does that look like? And so we worry, we compare, 
We compare to other, we compare to the super kids, we compare to the super families, because we all want the same thing. We want godly kids, but in the meantime, what does a 12-year-old who's going to turn out for Jesus look like when they're 12? And then we compare them to so-and-so's 12-year-old, and ours isn't living up to that. Oh, shoot. And then we have fear. We have a fear that our kids are not going to turn out. And here's the thing. We don't know what we're actually supposed to be measuring in our children. I mean, and I talked about this last week, but I'm going to talk about it again. I think back now to when I, because again, we're always looking forward to adults. What do we want in our kids as adults? But what should that look like when they're kids? I think back now. I mean, now I actually do enjoy reading the Bible. I enjoy the Bible um, for the most part. It's not like every day I wake up and I want to read the Bible, but for the most part, I enjoy meditating on Scripture now. I enjoy uh, even at times, I have seasons like this last uh, year or this last month, prayer and fasting month, I enjoyed memorizing Scripture. I memorized a whole bunch of chunks of Scripture. So I enjoy that now as an adult. I actually genuinely do love God. I need to love him more. I'm growing in that. But if I look back, so you look at, I look at myself and I go, okay, I, I don't want my kids to be exactly like me. There's some things I don't want them to be like, but I kind of want them to turn out that way. And so now I put that on them at 10 years old. They should be liking the same things I like now. That's the wrong way to, to measure things. Because if I look back at myself when I was 10, 12, 14, 15, 16, did I like to read the Bible like I do now? I did not. Did I like to memorize the way I like to memorize now? I did not. In fact, I was remembering one thing as I was meditating on the message this weekend, uh, for the message this weekend, as I was med- meditating during the week. Um, there was actually a time, I forget how old I was, I was probably around 11 or 12, but my dad actually offered me, I can't remember what the prize was, but he offered me something really amazing. It was either a whole lot of money or something really, really good to memorize the book of Ephesians, okay? And he even offered me to memorize chapters in Ephesians, like there was goals along the way, and again, I, I was trying to remember what the prize were. I'll have to ask him this afternoon maybe, but maybe he remembers. But, but he offered a, me a prize if I memorized the book of Ephesians. And you would look at me now. He's a pastor. He likes to memorize scripture. He likes to read scripture. So of course, when Pastor Ray offered him a prize, this kid, when he was two years old, he was already you know, reading the Minor Prophets and enjoying it. And uh, but, you know, the crazy thing is, I remember thinking, wow, like Dad offered me this prize. That would be so amazing. And did you, do you know how many verses of Ephesians I memorized out thereafter? Not even one. Someone get you guessed too high. Zero. I just didn't have the interest. Now, you go, oh, and I don't glory in that. I wish I had. You say, well, well, it, that just is, but I like it now. Now, was, dad, was it wrong for dad to try and encourage me that way? Not at all. I, I think it was a great idea. If I would have done it, it would have been great. I mean, to have God's word in your head, I mean, those seeds, it's amazing. But the fact of the matter is, if we just look at reality, I didn't. I just didn't have the interest, but I do now. So it's not enough. You can't just say, well, I want my kids to turn out a certain way. I need to see that in them right away when they're 10 or I have a fear reaction because they're not going to turn out. We need to look for other things. And again, it's not that it's bad to encourage. Again, what dad did, I thought it was, it was an awesome idea. I wish I would have done it. And with our kids today, you know, we, we make them memorize their verses that they get from Kids Man and Deeper and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and, and we have them reading their Bibles and, and all sort of stuff. But it's not, that's not what I measure now at 9 and 6 and 4 and 1. That's not what I measure. You know, um, when uh, uh, one of the most effective things, or the most, I, mean, I look back, so there was that reward my dad offered me for memorizing the book of Ephesians, and he had rewards going up for the chapters. Um, so I didn't do it that, at, that, at that point. But if I look back now, because now I do like to read the Bible, now I do like to memorize Scripture and stuff from time to time. And, but if I look back, what did my parents do that was really effective was they planted a lot of seeds. 
And so what did they do? They did read us Bible stories lots and lots. When we went to church, we got Bible stories. Very important. But one of the biggest things was watching mom and dad. I can still picture mom often sitting on the couch in the mornings with her Bible journaling. I can remember dad being up early in the morning in the basement, pacing. Uh, We knew he was reading scripture. We knew he was praying. Those were seeds that were being planted. So I didn't have it yet when I was an adolescent. I didn't have it yet when I was a kid. But those seeds later on, I go back to it, those seeds began to bear fruit in me by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now some of those things I do like to do. And it's kind of like if I think, uh, you know, my wife, every year, we have a a little four-by-eight garden in the back, which, by the way, I built by myself. And you can ask the guys at Lumberzone. I bought the wood and the nails, and I hammered it together. I might even build a second one this year. That's how handy I am. But anyway... um, (laughs) But every year she, she, you know, plants a bunch of tomato plants in that 4 by 8 uh, garden box. Now, can you imagine, tomatoes actually take a while to bear fruit. And so sometimes actually she has to plant the tomatoes in advance, even before the snow's all gone, and then she transplants them into the garden box later on. But can you imagine if she plants tomatoes, and in April and May she goes out there and just starts to have a fear reaction. There's no red, ripe, juicy tomatoes on these plants. And you would go, that would be silly. But she's all, fear, these are tomato plants. They're supposed to be bearing tomatoes. What if they don't turn out? What if my tomato plant gardening is defective? What if these plants are just bad plants and they're not going to have good hearts and they're not going to produce good tomatoes later on? You'd say that is silly. A tomato plant that's planted, you know, whenever in February or March can't bear tomatoes, here, especially here in Manitoba, in April and May. It needs time. And if you go, if she would go out there in May and June and July and even August, and, and she would have a fear reaction, there's no, the tomatoes aren't big, red, and juicy. There's little green, hard ones on there, but there's no big, red, juicy tomatoes. Maybe these plants are just totally never going to turn out good. You would say, again, you need to give it time. See, an immature plant cannot produce mature fruit. Isn't that true? So you can't measure the health of an immature plant by whether or not it produces mature fruit. Is that not true? And yet this is the source of so much fear for a lot of parents, is we're looking at immature people, and we're looking to see signs of big, red, juicy tomatoes, but we're looking in April and May and June and July. It's not time for that yet. And so there's a fear reaction. My child isn't turning out good for God. My child isn't going to be a responsible person because they're nine years old and they forget their schoolwork at school all the time. And it's, they'll never be responsible. Well, you're looking at a nine-year-old, not a 29-year-old. Some of you actually are looking at 29-year-olds and (laughs) that plant should be bearing some mature fruit already, unfortunately. But, um, But an immature plant cannot produce mature fruit. So you cannot measure, you cannot live your life in fear as a parent looking for signs of big, red, juicy tomatoes on plants that aren't ready to give big, red, juicy tomatoes. Now you say, well, then it's just, you know, it's just random. You don't know anything, and then you just wait and wait and wait, and hopefully when they're in their 20s, boom, bright red tomatoes come out, or you know what I mean, fruit, good fruit, character, and loving Jesus. Well, it's not that there's no signs of health or not health in a child. There are signs of health, but what we're looking for is not mature fruit. We're looking for signs of health. So a tomato plant, my wife LaDon can go out there in April, May, June, July, and August, and she doesn't expect to see bright red, you know, perfectly formed mature tomatoes, but she can look at the plant itself and see is the stem, maybe the stems are too weak. She's got to put wire mesh around there to help the stems grow up straight. She can look at the leaves, is there blight? She doesn't look for mature fruit. She looks at the plant itself to see is the plant healthy. 
Is it getting enough water? Is it getting enough uh, sun? Is it getting enough nutrients? She can look at the plant itself. She doesn't judge the health of the plant by whether it has mature fruit. She does not look for that. She looks for signs of health in the child, or in the plant. And the same is true for our children. As parents, we need to not get ahead of ourselves looking in our 12-year-old and our 13-year-old and our 14-year-old looking for signs that should only, will only come out in a 25 or 30-year-old or beyond, someone who's married and has had time to walk with Jesus. I mean, let's talk about teenagers here uh, for just a moment. This is really important, and uh, I'm getting myself ready. I got three years yet before I hit the teen years, and I'm trying to preach myself ready. And, uh, but some of you are already in it. And an increasing number of studies now are showing, I looked up some articles again this week, are showing that the teenage brain, just from a scientific a point of view that many teenagers could actually be classified as insane, okay? And many of you will, preach it, brother. I knew that. I didn't need some scientists to you spend a million bucks and do that and get a government grant. I knew that already, right? You, you put to bed a child who was sweet and cute and nice and loved you, and one morning a monster got up. What did you do with my child? And they feel anger, and they feel sadness, and they feel jubilation, and they do wild things all in the space of five minutes. But research is showing now that there are, and, and so as parents, you panic, right? Because again, we don't have this tomato plant idea in our heads. We're constantly looking for the fruit of mature adulthood, but we're looking for it in immature plants. And so you thought your kid was basically nice, and you thought it was just a nice linear climb into adulthood, and they would just get more and more responsible, and more and more, you know, secure, and more and more godly, and more and more sane, or all the way to adulthood, and you don't realize it's, it's, it's an up and down thing, and part of it is physiological and biological, in some, you know, in what must only be considered some kind of a sick joke on God's part, the emotional part of our brains, this is actually true, I was reading about this this week, the emotional part of our brains actually grows in before the rational part, okay? Hence teenagers, okay? So they get somewhere in there, a trigger goes, their brain gets flooded in surges of hormones, and the rational part of their brain isn't going isn't to finish developing for another 10 years, but their emotional part of their brain is growing like crazy. And so they're feeling things wildly, and they're, they're here, they're there, they're, they're everywhere. They're, it's, a, it's messy, and parents freak out there because they go, oh, you know, we're just a few years from adulthood, and now my child is experiencing crazy highs and lows, and they're all over the map. And we freak out because we're looking for bright red tomatoes on a plant that's not ready to give bright red tomatoes. And we need to temper our expectations there. Now, this isn't a, an excuse. This isn't a scientific excuse. For, some of you might be taking this as now, oh, what Chris is really preaching is we should just let our teenagers do whatever they want. No, no, no. We talked about boundaries and discipline last week. And if ever, you know, they needed boundaries and discipline and consistency in strength in their parents, it's when they're teenagers to keep them safe in many ways from themselves. But we can't expect them before their time to be mature. And we can't live in fear as parents because we don't see that maturity there when it's not ready to be mature. So we need to look, instead of looking for mature fruit, what we need to do is look at the plant itself and see for the stage where the plant is at, is this thing healthy? And we can look at the child that for the stage where they're at, they can't be a mature, godly person yet. But for the stage where they're at, are they showing signs of health? And you say, well, what are the signs of health? And, I mean, there's tons and tons I'm sure that we could look at. I just want us to look at two key ones, just very briefly. Then we're going to look at some scripture and look at how we develop that kind of health. 
But I want to just look at, at, at two, and again, there's many, there's more than this, but two signs of health. Rather than looking for mature fruit, look for signs of health in the child themselves. And one sign of health in a child and in a family, one very key one is that there's open lines of communication between the parent and the child. Okay? Now, the child might be up and down, and, and they might be feeling things that they don't know how to cope with it, and they might be doing some, some crazy stuff, and you don't. But if there's open lines of communication between the parent and the child, there's a connection there. That is a very good sign for the plant in the long run. It might not have mature fruit yet hanging there that looks really good that you can be pumped about, but it's not ready for that yet. If there's open lines of communication that this child wants to talk to their parent and is connected to their parent and, and isn't living in secrecy and shame and hiding things and totally connected to their peers and absolutely ignoring their parents, if there's open communication between parent and child, that is a very good sign of health, that things will turn out. And we'll look at that more in just a little bit. There's a second thing, and really these two, I don't, I mean, they're a lot the same thing. One goes hand in hand with the other. In another sign of health in a child is strong emotional connection between parents and child. Strong emotional connection. You know, uh, a lot of parents do a lot of stuff with their kids, and that's a good start. Often it's through doing stuff with your kids that a strong emotional connection is made, but a strong emotional connection is different than just doing stuff with your kids. And there are parents who do a lot of stuff with their kids, and they have no emotional connection. An emotional connection is, my children feel, um, they, I know them and they know me. And again, this goes hand in hand really with open lines of communication. It just fleshes it out in a different way. But we as a family can feel together. We are allowed to feel together. We're allowed to feel things. We're allowed to express feelings. But there is, there is a connection, a bond between parents and children or parent and child where a child can feel and feels things with the parents and the two are together. Parents are able to feel. They know what's going on with each other. That is a very good sign. There might not be mature health yet or I mean mature fruit. The child might do things that they regret. They might, I mean, I look back to my teenager years and I mean, I never went way off the rails or anything, but I did lots of things that now I'm like, oh, ashamed of, embarrassed of, wish I hadn't done. Like, what was I thinking? But you know what? Teenagers are going to do that stuff. But if there's that connection between parents and child, an emotional connection, that is sign of health in the plant itself, that sign of health in a child that later on is going to be very key to them bearing real fruit. And again, the whole point of what I'm teaching this message is there's this fear. We're looking for the wrong things at the wrong time. And we need to look for the right things. Now, we'll get more in depth about what that means in just a minute on the whole strong emotional connection between parents and child and open lines of communication, but I just want to show you a passage of Scripture now because this isn't, I'm not just talking here child psychology and modern stuff that's just been invented in the last 10 years. Really, the basics of everything has been in the Scripture and it's been there all along. And so if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'm just going to read you the famous love passage. It says this, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, I just want to stop there for just a moment. We're going to spend more time in the second part of the passage. But what a powerful statement right there. Paul contrasts love with external things. See, his parents... And as people, this isn't just for parenting. It doesn't matter who you are here today. This passage applies to you, and it applies to your relationships. But as parents, so often, we're looking at external things. 
We're judging our kids by external things. How well and whatever. The, and so we, you know, how much are they reading the Bible, but also how good are they doing at school and how responsible are they with this and how this and how that. And we're judging external things. What is interesting to me in this passage is Paul starts by contrasting external things with love. And it's not that the external things aren't important. It's not that reading the Bible isn't important. It is. I love it now. It's life. The Word of God is life. It's not that doing well at school and working hard and all these things are not important. They are really important. But what Paul shows us here is there's a difference between the external and the internal. And he says you can have all the external things you want and you can judge as a parent and measure your kids by all the external things. Are they doing the same things everyone else is doing? And I'm freaked out because they're not going to turn into godly people because they're not doing the things they would do if they were a godly person. And Paul says what really matters is love. Love on your part and love on their part. A child who is healthy and who is able to love you and receive love from you, that is a plant that has a very good chance of bearing fruit at some point. It's the, it's the love thing. That's the thing that really matters, okay? And that matters. That's what we should be showing them. That's what we should be looking for in them more than the externals, especially in immature plants. But if we keep going, Paul actually fleshes this out now. He makes it intensely practical. He shows us what love is. And he says in verse 4, love is patient and kind. So this is really, really important. Love is patient and kind, Okay? So you're freaked out about bah, 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 my, my child isn't doing this, 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 or this, and all the other super kids are doing this, 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 and this. But did you know that if your child shows even a hint of kindness, like if you have a child who exhibits from time to time in fleeting moments, but they have even a little piece of kindness growing in their hearts. That is something as a parent to jump up and down and be very excited about. That's what Paul's saying here. That is sign of a healthy plant. A plant that grows in kindness and patience and love is a plant that's going to bear fruit at some point. Do you hear what I'm saying? Now some of you are freaking out right away. Oh, my kids are the opposite of patient and kind. Well, again, let's turn this back on ourselves as parents. The most important thing here is you. Is you. You be patient and kind, and over hundreds of interactions. See, we also guilt ourselves. I'm not doing enough of this. I'm not doing enough family doors. We need to do family devotions. We need to get the Bible into our kids. There's no question. But we count ourselves constantly by how many times am I doing these things rather than taking a look inside and saying, am I patient? That's what really matters. See, a person, a parent who is patient and kind through hundreds of interactions, because that's what you have with your kids. Hundreds of interactions, day after day after week after week, a month after month. You're having hundreds of actions with your interactions with your kids. And if you grow in patience and kindness, guess what they'll grow in? And this is the stuff that really matters. This is the stuff, when you look at a plant, it's not the externals. And the fruit stuff will eventually come if you can get a healthy plant. But if you can grow in patience and kindness, they will grow in patience and kindness. And any small sign of patience and kindness in a family is something to get excited about. Forget all the comparing with everybody else. Look for patience and kindness in yourself and in your children. That's a huge thing. Now, patience and kindness, a lot of us, we read this passage. This is one of those famous passages. And it, we kind of have this idea of, you know, oh, love is patient and love is kind. And it's this, sort of this feeling like, what a wonderful passage, but we don't actually apply it to our lives because this is just sort of a feel-good passage. Love is patient, love is kind. No, 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 no. Patience and kindness are not feelings. I mean, ultimately, it's great as we 
incorporate them into our lives, and as they become us, we begin to feel them as well. There's not, I'm, I'm not denying that aspect of it. But patience and kindness are not feelings, they're actions. This is intensely practical stuff. I'm not throwing something out there, just be patient and kind as your family, and ooh, what a feel-good message that was. These are intensely practical things that will radically impact how you parent and will radically impact the health of your children. If you want to raise plants that bring out big, ripe, you know, juicy, godly, you know, fruit of the Spirit, fruit. This is how you get it. You be patient and kind and let it rub off on them. So let me show you, this is intensely practical. It's not just a feeling, go home now and be patient and kind. What does that even mean? There are hundreds of real world ways that patience and kindness work themselves out. But let me show you a couple of really important ones. What does patience and kindness look like in real life? And again, this is so far beyond just parenting. If you're here and you're not a parent, this applies to all of your relationships. But as parents, let's really focus this in on our families or we can have a huge discipleship impact on our kids. But one way that patience and kindness works themselves out in actual everyday life is listening to your children in order to understand them rather than listening to fix, judge, and lecture them. Oh, suddenly this just, I just threw in a few words there. Fix, judge, lecture. Listen, understand. I just threw some things in there and you're going, oh, okay. Suddenly, patience and kindness isn't this thing that's out in the realm of the theoretical. It's intensely practical. But you want to radically impact your kids. Yes, we've got to get the Bible into them. There's not even a question. But if you try getting the Bible into your kids by just, by just regimenting family devotionals, and then you are a person who, in your interactions with your children, you judge, lecture, and fix all the time, you know what in the end they'll do? Is they'll reject the Bible. They will reject the external stuff. They will reject the external stuff if you don't show them the internal. I know I'm thinking of people right now here in this church who have told me testimonies, people who, who had parents that were highly religious that read them the Bible every single day, some, in some cases that I know of, that later every single person in the family turned and walked away from God because there was no love in the home. You can try and hang red tomatoes off of an immature plant. You just break the plant. We need to get the Bible. I believe in the Bible. I get the Bible to my kids, and I prayed with them again last night, and I read them godly stuff all the time. But what they really need with that, what they need is love, and they need patience and kindness. And the biggest way you show patience and kindness to anyone but to your kids is in the way you listen to them. I mean, I think back to, think back to a time when you were really struggling with something. I think this is something that all of us want almost more than anything else. It's just, would somebody just understand me and not just try to fix me and lecture me? But you think back to times in your life when you struggled with something and you had a big decision at work or you were struggling over finances or you had a physical thing or emotional thing or a shame thing or whatever, you were wrestling with something and think back to times in your life where someone came along there and instead of just throwing a lecture at you of how you could do this better, or instead of just trying to fix your problem right away, they actually just tried to get heart to heart with you and just listen to you and be with you and support you. And isn't that not life? See, and our kids are human beings too. Isn't that true? I mean, I think they're human beings. I had human beings, I mean. But the sad thing is, as parents... It's the people in our lives who we love the most, our kids, who are very often the people we are least likely to, in the moment, take the time to try to understand. And I think that's true as well. Little four-year-old 
Sammy spills his milk. It's the third supper this week that he's done it. And he's crying, right? And what is the, our parental response? Well, in the moment, it's usually exasperation, is it not? And we're going to fix this problem. You spilled the milk because you use one hand. I keep telling you to use two hands. Isn't that what we say right away? He's crying. He's blubbering right there. I'm going to fix his problem. You should have used two hands, Sammy. Teenager comes home from school, slams the door behind them. We don't go over to the room and try to figure out why are they upset. We yell over there, you're not supposed to slam the door. Now you say, oh, well, what are you saying? We, we can't have rules? I mean, I told him he's supposed to use two hands. I told him he's not supposed to slam the door. Well, it's not that you can't have rules. I talked about that last week. We've got to have boundaries. We've got to have discipline. We've got to have consequences. Absolutely. But in the moment when your kid is upset and you lecture them, how does it feel to you? Let's just turn it around a bit. When you make a mistake, is that what draws you into God? Don't you just love that? As soon as you make a mistake, you go to the devotions, and what does he do before he does anything? He hammers you. Should have done that differently. Is that how you got, that's how you guys all fell in love with Jesus, right? That's how he won your heart. You know, when you lecture people in the moment of their hurt, do you know how much of that truth they receive in their hearts? Pretty much zero. When you lecture someone who's hurting, you know how much they receive from you? What they receive is they get mad. When you lecture a little four-year-old, you should have used two hands. Now, I'm not saying, I'm going to get to that in just a moment. Yeah, they should use two hands. And you'd enjoy your supper a lot more if they did. But in the moment, the first thing you need to do is when you come at them, they know they've made a mistake. When you get upset and exasperated, you know what that communicates to them? Mommy and daddy get mad when I make a mistake. You do that to them dozens of times and hundreds of times over many interactions. You know what they start to feel about God? God's mad at me when I make a mistake. Mistakes aren't good. You know what else they do? When they become teenagers, they start to hide their mistakes from you. I don't know why 13-year-old whatever never talks to me about stuff. Hmm, I wonder why that is. Because through hundreds of interactions with you over time from when they were tiny, every time they messed up, you were exasperated and mad. We teach them to hide. We teach them to hide from God. We teach them to hide from us. And then we wonder why they do it. So we hammer them with lectures and shaming in the moment when they're hurting. It's not that we can't talk to them about rules, but the first thing they need is for someone to feel with them. The first thing they need is, you know, little spilt milk Sammy spills his milk. And it's going to be the hardest, least natural thing for you to do. Natural is coming out of your flesh, exasperation and lecturing. Very easy to do. You know, I mean, if you came here just to do easy, you didn't even need a message about that. That's easy. But in a moment, what a little spilt milk Sammy needs is, first of all, someone to recognize, actually, he's sad because his shirt is soaked in milk. Oh, I'm sorry, Sammy. Inside, you're feeling differently, but you fake it until you change. <laughs> you just fake it. I like what Donovan said, you know, faking, uh, you know, about faking. And you don't want to end at faking, but start with faking, okay? <laughs> you just fake until you start to change. But I'm, Sammy, I'm so sorry. You know what? And now, you want, you want to talk about life? You want to speak life into a little plant that's immature? It's not ready to bear fruit yet, but you want to put seeds of life into this thing so that it can bear fruit later on? You give a smile and pretend that it's not hurting you. 
to walk away from the supper table, but you put on a smile, let's go change your shirt. You know what you are communicating? You can do all the family devils that you want and tell them how much you love them, but it's in a moment when they're hurting and you show them that they're not a bother to you, that's when they feel love. You can talk to them love at a family devotional time. It goes into their head. It doesn't go into their heart. It's when they're crying at supper because they spilled milk. That's when their heart is open to either receive rejection from you or love from you. And in just a couple minutes, you can say, oh, Daddy wouldn't like to be soaked in milk either. Let's go get you changed. And you give him a smile that he's not a bother to you in your life. And you take him over there and you change his sweater and you give him a big hug. And you have just shown him that even when he makes mistakes, daddy and mommy love me. Wait a minute. Later on, he's going to take that lesson. He's going to apply it to God. But he's going to feel like you love them. Now you say, well, what about the rules? Well, when you have first met the need and you've listened to understand, now you can talk to them about the rules. Once you first met them in their, in, at the heart, this is, I mean, this is the best devotional you can ever do. Now, later on in the evening, when you tack on Bible stuff about God, it's going to connect in their brain, which you're connecting to their heart, that mom and dad love me, and I'm a worthwhile person, and even when I make mistakes, there's grace. Once you've met them there, and you've calmed them down, and you've said, I love you, now you can look them in the eyes and say, okay, now, Sammy, how many hands are you supposed to use when you're drinking your milk? Two. Now, maybe there's a discipline that goes with that. Maybe they're not allowed to drink milk now at supper. Or maybe you go back to the supper table and you say, now we're going we're gonna to practice this now, Sammy, with water, okay, or with whatever, or just air, because maybe his percentage isn't that good. And, uh, <laughs> but we're going to practice this now. Two hands, lift it to your mouth, and everybody's cheering at the wall. Yay! And he puts it on. You do it with two hands. You do it again, again, again. Okay, two hands, Sam, all right? But you first listen to understand. First you listen to understand. First you connect with them where they are. First you feel with them, okay? Before you fix the problem, first love the person. Before you fix the problem, first love the person. That will do wonders in your child's heart. Because actually the person is more important than the problem. And for many of us, we totally forget that. And that is why we parent our children. We want them to turn out godly. And we do all kinds of external spiritual things to make that happen. But we miss out on the most important thing, which is just help them to see that you love them and that they're worthwhile. And if we could keep that in our minds that the person is more important than the problem and treated them that way, you talk about health in a plant and you do that over years and yeah, they're going to hit their teenage years and there's going to be crazy stuff going on and feelings and different things. But if you will keep that path and always show them that way, what happens over time is you treat them with patience and kindness like that. That's patience and kindness in action. Because some of you are saying, yeah, but this is going to take forever. Hence, love is patient. Some of you are so in such a hurry. You're in a hurry to eat supper. You're in a hurry to fix the milk problem. You're in a hurry to do this. You're in a hurry to do that. Love is patient. It will mean sometimes cold suppers. It will mean selflessness. It will mean a cost. Love is patient. This is what patience looks like. It sometimes takes time to love other people. It sometimes takes time 
to love your kids. And I think of that teenager who comes in and slams the door. Yeah, you want to deal with the door slamming thing. Fine, that's a rule. And you don't want them slamming the door. It's, it's not the right way to handle things. But before you lecture them, when you lecture that teenager, they don't receive the truth of what you're lecturing. What they receive is, mom and dad don't get me. In fact, mom and dad don't want to get me. I'm going to my friends. And they'll give their hearts to their friends instead of to you. Mom and dad don't want to get me. They just don't understand me. That's what happens when you move straight to lecturing. But what ha would happen if you would get up out of your chair or whatever you're doing and just go over to the room and before you even talk about the slam door, the slam door is just the signal something's upsetting them. So let's find out if the person is more important. What is more important in the long run? A hundred years from now, when you're both in heaven, or 10,000 years from now, or whatever, or even just two years from now, or two months from now, what's more important to you, your kid or the door? I mean, it's an obvious question. We all go, well, obviously, it's the kid's more important to me, than, to me than the door. So why do we focus on the door? Why is the first thing out of our mouth, it's about the door? It's not about the door, it's about your kid. Get to the door second. Your child is a billion times more important than that door. If it came down, if God gave you a choice and said, what do you want? Do you want a banged up door or do you want a kid in heaven? You'd say, I'm I'll take the banged up door and let's put the kid in heaven. You'd gladly, you'd take a hundred banged up doors. So remember that in the moment. And you go now and you say, son or daughter, obviously something is upsetting you, what's wrong? And then they tell you, I hate school. And right away you lecture again. That's what you need. You need to go to school and work hard so you can get a job. <laughs> yeah, and your kid, oh, that goes straight to their heart. Oh, dad loves me. Yeah, that helps them a lot. Let me mark that down, Dad. <laughs> a lecturing. No. You know what? Lecturing does nothing but upset people. First love. Oh, you hate school. Why? Like, what, what's that? Because something's upsetting them. Probably someone called them a name or, or, or something bad happened at school. They got blamed for something they didn't do. I don't know. Or their friends. They're teenagers and they're all, they're nuts. <laughs> so you listen to them you get to the bottom of it, and once you've gone to the bottom of it, you feel with them. Oh, I would hate that too. And when you've met them there, it's amazing. All of a sudden, their heart opens up. Oh. And now at the end of the conversation, you talk about, you know what? Totally get that you're upset. Absolutely get it. But, but you know, the right way to handle it is not with the slamming the door. That's not acceptable. And maybe, maybe there's a consequence for it. Maybe there's something. Maybe you just talk about it. I don't know, whatever in a moment or whatever's going on, all that sort of stuff. But first, you love the person, then you fix the problem. And the thing is, if you do it in that order, you actually fix the problem too in the end. Once you have them in a calm place where they're connected with you, you can now talk to them about stuff and they'll listen to you. And they'll feel like, this is the thing, you've got to win your kids' hearts because the culture will try and win their hearts too and their friends are going to try and win their hearts and their peers at school are going to try and win their hearts. Everything is competing for their hearts. You don't win your kids' hearts by lecturing them and not listening to them. But if you win your kids' hearts, even though they're immature and they're not producing all the mature fruit that you want them to someday pr produce, but if you listen to them and love them, you'll have an emotional bond with them and you'll win their hearts and they'll come to you instead of everything else and that's a healthy plant and someday you have a very good chance of seeing good tomatoes come out of a plant like that. That's health. Love is patient and kind. There's so much more we could talk about here in this passage, tons and tons. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. 
It is not arrogant. I mean, just apply these things. I mean, just meditate and apply them to your life. We could talk about vulnerability here, and I, I just don't have time. We won't go into all this right now, but vulnerability, sharing your, with your kids weaknesses. Did you know dad struggles with this? And again, appropriately. I mean, there's certain kinds of struggles you probably don't want to talk about with your kids and they don't want to hear you talk about, but weaknesses. Like, did you know daddy sometimes struggles with worry or anxiety too? And they go, oh, really? You know, mommy sometimes has, a, has trouble sleeping at night because of whatever. And you share weaknesses with your kids, vulnerability when you mess up. You tell them, you know what, I'm scared. I don't always feel like I know how to parent you guys. And you share with them and you're open with them in appropriate ways. And you apologize to them when you have it wrong. Love is not arrogant. Love is patient and kind. This is what creating an atmosphere of grace in your home does. Now, this is the thing. When you are becoming this person, now you bring Bible stories and family devotions into this, and now these Bible stories have, have somewhere to grab onto. If you're not loving your kids, you're going to create hard hearts, and all those Bible stories are just going to bounce off. They're not going to hit home. But if you love them and show them patience and kindness and hundreds of your interactions with them, the Bible stuff will start to then grab. That's when it begins to make a difference. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. We could all have an encounter right there, parents, on irritable and resentful. Love is not that. You, you might feel that sometimes, but you don't act out of that. And again, it's practice. And as you do it and pray about it, God begins to change the way you feel as well. It's actually true. I know that personally. There's character traits, and it's through having kids, and you work on these things again and again and again. You pray about them, and you practice them, and you learn how, and then your feelings start to change, and you learn how to be gracious, and you learn how to be patient, and you grow in it. It is not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And that is just a beautiful, that is a beautiful passage about love, but it's not just a flowery speech. It's actually something that we can apply to our lives and it changes. It, the way we listen to them, the way we talk to them, the way we spend time with them changes everything in them. You can, you can garden and tend by the Spirit's power a healthy plant. Now some of you are sitting there going, oh again, I just, I feel convicted. I'm a lecturer. I'm a judger. I'm a fixer. I'm impatient. I'm exasperated. Hey, yeah, hu welcome to the human race. You say, yeah, but my kids are, they're already all teenagers. It's too late. It's never too late. It's never too late. My kids are all grown up and they're out of the house. Exactly how you talked about parenting just now. That's how I did all my parenting and now they're grown up. You know what? It's never too late. They might have their own kids. You can begin to show them this as a grandparent. As a parent of adults, you can begin to show them patience and kindness. You can listen to understand. You can do all these things, and God can turn all things for good, even the past. He can redeem it all. There's always hope. You don't have to be perfect, and it isn't all messed up. As long as your kids are still alive and you're still alive, there's still hope for the whole bunch of you. And you can pray, and you can see God do things. So here's the weekly challenge I want to give you for this week. The last of, of what I'm going to speak on parenting here. Ask God to remind you. How do you, how do you begin to change things? Ask God this week to remind you of two or three times in the past month. For some of you, just in the last day, and he'll already give you some. But two or three times in the last little while, when you have responded to your children out of exasperation, and you've treated the problem rather than the person first. And you say, what's the point of that? Just so I can feel bad? No, no, this is actually how you can begin to change. Because it's, I can't, there's a, there's, 
Thousands of different scenarios represented here. You and your families, each one is different. Each scenario is different. I can't tell you exactly how this looks. One of the best ways is to go back to recent times when you acted out of exasperation and to think through and write it in your journal or work it through with your spouse. This is how I could have handled that differently in the real world. And write it out and think that through. How could I have, how could I have loved a person and treated the person as more important than the problem? You do that a couple of times. You tuck it through your spouse. You journal it out. And now you prayerfully, you go, okay, God, now I'm ready for the next time this happens. This is what I'm going to try. And this is how you begin to train yourself. It's actually practice. Some of us are waiting for Holy Spirit magic. Some of you are waiting for magic, and the Holy Spirit doesn't do magic. He will not do anything, or he will, most things he does in your life, he will make you also work with him in this. If you're waiting for him to just, fairy godmother, ting, you're a perfect parent, doesn't happen. I'm just waiting for... Ting, I'm going to be patient. It's not going to happen. Ting, I'm going to just treat my kids this way. It will not happen. You just listen to a message. It still won't happen. The Holy Spirit will say, okay, roll up the sleeves. Let's become better people together. I'm going to empower you as you give me some effort. So you journal some of these things through. You, you think them through. LaDonna and I have done stuff like this. And you, you work through. Then we'll talk through often on Monday mornings when we, when we pray together. Talk through, ah, oh, you know, I, I messed up in that case. This, this is how I would do it. This is how I'd like to do it the next time. And you talk it through and you journal it through and you think it through. And you get a strategy. And now you begin to practice doing it right. Prayerfully. And it's amazing what God can begin to do in your life. Look for opportunities to practice in your morning devos each day. Just journal how you're doing. Say thank you, God. And just look back over the previous day. That's the beauty of parenting. You get to practice every day. You look back the day before. Okay, Lord, how did I do? Oh, hey, I'm getting better. And you do this over time. You do this for a few weeks. You can actually change. This is the hope. You can actually change. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can listen to a message like this. You can go, okay, I've been lecturing, judging, fixing, but I want to go with treating the person as more important. I want to tend a healthy plant that can someday bear fruit and you can begin a change if you'll just work at it by God's grace. And then pray and ask God to grow you in love, real love. And lastly, you can get other people to pray for you as well. And again, I'm just going to keep saying it. I've been pumping it the last little while, but just across from the auditorium, right out those doors, we have after service prayer. We have volunteers there uh, ready to pray with you and for you. You just go in there and say, I want to be a better parent. I want to love more. I got huge issues. And you break down weeping. and they, No, you just, it's, if you want to, you can. They love it. But you just go there and they pray for you. And prayer actually works. So I'm going to pray for you now too. So you can bow your heads. And you, maybe you're here today and you're not a parent. That's okay. Some of you, you will be someday. But all of you are going to have relationships. And this is about all of us growing in love. Lord Jesus, it would be heaven. Can you imagine if we had a church where we treated people as more important than problems. And instead of lecturing and judging and fixing problems, we first listened and loved people. Wow, this would feel like heaven here. This would feel like family, good family. And Lord, that's the kind of church that we want to be. That's the kind of families we want to be. Jesus, can you imagine if we as parents won our, heart, our kids' hearts? Our culture is pulling so hard, but you've actually given us the advantage. Biologically, you've made them want to connect to us. If we will love them properly, we have the advantage. We can win their hearts. I pray for every family that's represented here this morning that you will help us as parents win our kids' hearts through patience and kindness. And then as we win their hearts, Jesus, Lord, help us to win their hearts to you. 
We're going to win their hearts first to us. And then as we follow you, that's going to catch on with them and they're going to want to follow you too. And then, Lord, we're going to raise a generation of healthy, joy-filled, Holy Spirit-filled kids who love their parents and love Jesus. What an amazing church this is going to be. I thank you for what you're going to do. In your name we pray all these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.